Open your Bibles, if you would please, to Psalm 46. Psalm 46. Follow along, if you would, as I read it. For the director of music of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth give way, and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is with her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. In preparing to look at this psalm, I thought it would be good for us to review some of what we looked at about the psalms some years ago. That there are two notable things about the psalm. First of all, they are marked by an extravagant claim. And that claim is that the psalms are necessary. They are necessary. They're not necessary for our salvation. I want to be clear about that. It is by God's grace alone that we are saved. But whether our prayers are clumsy or skilled, whether they are heretical or orthodox, whether they are taken verbatim from the Psalms or ad-libbed in difficult circumstances, that gets us no points with God. We gain no merit. Right words and correct forms are not required to get an audience with God. But the Psalms are necessary. They are necessary. When I say this, though, this isn't something that I am saying alone. This has been what the church has said throughout its history. But why do we say that they are necessary? Because they teach us. These are master prayers, if you wish, and they teach us how to pray. When we read the Psalms, when we study them, we, we, we acquire a certain skill, a certain facility, using the tools that we find in these Psalms. And surprisingly, we become more and more ourselves. We would think if we ad-lib, well, that's, that's me. The reality is, as we read these and as we pray the Psalms, we become more ourselves. Now, if you choose to ignore the Psalms, that doesn't mean you can't pray. You're not excluded. Okay? But I think what happens is you learn by trial and error what you could have learned from the book of Psalms and the various Psalms found there. If we choose to dismiss the Psalms, which I think the church in the last century is done. If we want something that's more up to date, this is not to say we will not have God's grace. But we will, in fact, miss something very important, and that is 
These are the psalms that Jesus prayed. If we push them aside, in essence we are saying that we can do a better job than Jesus did. The reality is he prayed these psalms. The second reason is that in the history of prayer, the psalms stand out with a certain awkwardness and uniqueness. The uniqueness is they don't fit into the normal pattern of prayer. That is prayer as we tend to think of it. We are incomplete. We're unfinished. We are in process. And so we are reaching out. We want to be fulfilled. We want to be more than what we are. And so this is usually what comes out in our prayers. One could argue that prayers articulate us seeking our best. They give voice to our aspiration to be the highest that we can be. What it means to be human is expressed in prayer. And this includes not only the dark things, our sorrows, our fears, but also our nobility, our creativity. But even more than that, it also it includes the dark side of us, if you wish, our lust, our greed, our pride and our pettiness, which we somehow can disguise in the form of prayer. Either way, if we are left to our own devices, prayers attempt to show us at our best. They try to put on a good show. This is not the case with the Psalms. The Psalms are acts of obedience. They answer the God who has spoken. As we've seen when we looked at prayer, God speaks, we respond in prayer. And when God speaks and we respond, we're not seeking God. God has spoken. We are responding to him. As such, oftentimes the prayers that we find in the Psalms, and hopefully in our prayers, we find surprised. Why is it that God came looking for us? Why is it that God spoke to us? And that, that's the awkwardness that comes out in this. You see, when we pray, we are looking for something else. Not really the God who came looking for us. God comes and he speaks. He speaks to us. He catches us in our sins. He catches us in our despair. He invades our lives and our minds by his grace. And we respond in the Psalms to him in prayer. We don't always like what God has to say. We don't always understand what God is doing. So if we were left to our own devices, we would seek a different kind of God, a God of our own creation, who says what we like to hear, who makes promises that we really want to have fulfilled. The fact is, God is speaking to us, the God of all creation. And in our speaking, if we pray the Psalms as we should pray, we begin to grow, we begin to develop, we begin to mature, 
in our conversations with God. The Psalms train us for this. There is a world of difference between praying to a God of your own creation, a known God, unknown God that we hope, in fact, will discover us or we will discover him or it in our praying and praying to a God who is there, the God of Israel, the God who reveals himself in the Lord Jesus Christ, one who speaks our language. If we pray to an unknown God, somehow we're trying to find religious fulfillment. But if we pray to the true God, we are being obedient and we are being faithful. The first one, I think, may be a lot more fun. Religious fulfillment, it's all about me. But the second is a lot more important. Prayer, let's see if I can put this right. We are not to seek to learn how to express ourselves. We, in fact, are to learn how to answer God. And sometimes we may do so rather badly, rather clumsily. That is not the point. The Psalms are not there so we can pray beautiful prayers. They are here so that we can respond to God who has spoken to us. When we went through this, I mentioned that the modern church, for some reason, has set the Psalms aside in public worship. And I think if you don't do it in public worship, you'll ignore them in private worship as well. But the fact is, when you look at church history throughout the spectrum, in the West, in the East, the Eastern Orthodox, um, during the Reformation, in the Catholic Church, you find that the Psalms are central. They're centrally important. They have been guides for Christians every day. They are our daily guides. So, it is interesting that we began the book of Psalms with Psalm 1 and 2. The book of Psalms is a collection of prayers, but not the first two Psalms, which seems a bit strange. But in fact, they are to prepare us. Because the reality is, we're not ready to pray. Um, as I've mentioned many times, I, I think my vision of us praying oftentimes is like Kramer in Seinfeld, where he skates into the room. Um, no, no sense of preparation, of decorum. Um, God hears us whenever we pray. I, I don't want to say that he doesn't. But the reality is we need to prepare ourselves. We are too wrapped up in ourselves. And we look at the world around us and oftentimes it dictates what we say in our prayers. And so we're not answering God as such that he has spoken to us, but we're just looking at our circumstances and crying out as a result. The world can be a dark place, a pushing, a shoving, a demanding place. There are voices inside of us, there are voices outside of us that harass us, that insist, look at this headline, look at this bit of news, buy this product. And this oftentimes begins to shape our prayers. In a world that is full of stimuli, the idea that we should be quiet and pray before God seems rather strange and absurd. A world that is filled with bluster, with arrogance and violence, that has governments and armies 
viruses. The idea that somehow we should not be anxious, that we should be quiet before the Lord in prayer, seems rather strange. And in fact, it's not easy. It's quite difficult. Because we are used to being the center of our worlds. We are used to being anxious about something. We are used to having problems. We are not used to God and his mysterious ways. And so Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 get us ready to pray. They're a pair. One speaks of the blessed man. The second one speaks of those who are in rebellion against God. But they're there to prepare us. And I would argue we always need to be prepared. Because the reality is, I think much of the day, we are at the center of our thoughts. We are not listening for God's voice. Okay. That prepares us for Psalm 46. More could be said. Um, but I want us to look at Psalm 46. I would point out the title, according to Al- Al- Alamoth, a song. In First Chronicles 15, we read about the musicians when the ark was brought by David to Jerusalem. It's verses 19, 20, and 21. The musicians Heman, Asaph, and Ethan were to sound the bronze cymbals. Zechariah, Aziel, Shemaramoth, Jehiel, Uni, Eliab, Maasiah, and Benaiah were to play the lyres according to Alamoth. And Mattathiah, Eliphelu, let me say that again, Eliphelu, Mekniah, Obed-Edom, Jael, and Azaziah were to play the harps, directing according to Sheminath. All indications are that Alamoth, which means literally girls, was for the upper range, the soprano and the alto. The lyres were to be in that key, if you wish. Sheminath was for the lower range, for the tenor and the bass. What I take away from this, because this may in fact not be what's the case, is that the psalm was meant to be sung. And in fact, it is called a, a song. We are told in the title, according to Alamoth, a song. There are three parts to the psalm. Each part ends with Selah a word that appears 74 times in the Old Testament, three times in Habakkuk, the rest of the time in the book of Psalms. And what its exact meaning is not known to us, but we believe it indicates a pause. And now we have Alamoth, so we know it's the the upper range of instruments that we'll be playing. So the people sing the first three verses, and then Selah, there is a pause. And for me, the picture is of what Tom does for us between the last two verses of every hymn we sing. A time to consider what we have just said and to look ahead to what we are about to sing in the last verse. Three parts to the psalm. The first is in the first three verses. And here, simply put, God rules in creation. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging, Selah. 
The first verse establishes the ruling principle for the whole psalm, along with its implied application. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. God rules, and so we are to put our trust in him. He is our refuge and our strength in trouble, therefore we are not to fear. And what follows is a very partial list of natural disasters, one that I think we who live in Southern California can relate to. The collapse of mountains, tsunamis, and earthquakes. The pictures that the sons of Korah paint can be put into two words, chaos and change. One might say that mountain used to be over there and now it's, it's moved or it no longer exists. Or the beach used to be shaped a particular way, but after the tsunami came, it made a big difference. It changed things. But God rules. And so the sons of Korah tell us, Selah, let the instruments play. Let's think about this, that God, in fact, is in control. The second part of this psalm is found in verses 4 through 7. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar, kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice, the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. Once again, the section begins with a statement of who God is. God is the one who helps and who will help. But again, it is followed by a picture of chaos and change. Nations are in uproar, kingdoms fall. And yet greater than the chaos and the change is the Lord Almighty. What powerful words we hear, the Lord lifts his voice, the earth melts. The NIV, I think, gives us the wrong sense here because he lifts his voice. We think that he's shouting or you know, yelling or something. Um, in other translations, is that he utters his voice. He simply speaks. It isn't simply by... You know, the, the vibrations of this loud voice, it is the power of his word. He speaks and the earth melts. It is the power of the Lord Almighty. The section closes with words of comfort. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. But let's stop. This is a sila. This is the second sila. Let's stop and consider what we've seen thus far. We have statements of God's presence. God's power in the midst of chaos and change, whether it be in nature or creation or in political structures. And I want us to think about where we find ourselves today. We who have had, we have known a level of prosperity, of constancy, of security, of predictability that has been unknown in human history. Things have gone on quite well. There have been some difficulties, some bumps, but nothing like this. Suddenly we find our world turned upside down. And we may find ourselves wondering, is God our refuge? Is he our strength? Is he an ever-present 
help in trouble. Is the Lord Almighty with us? Is the God of Jacob our fortress? Are these things true? This leads us to the third and final section in which we find a double invitation and challenge. First of all, we are to acknowledge that God rules. Look at verses 8 and 9. Come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. See, living when and where we do, we tend to think, we tend to imagine that we have explanations for everything that happens. For natural disasters or catastrophes, we may not be able to stop them, but we know what they are, what, the, how, what happened. The conflicts between peoples, between nations. We know, or we imagine that we know why one side wins and the other side loses it never seems to occur to us that God is in control. People are trying to figure out how this darkness has come upon us. Have we thought that God knew about this all along? You may say, Damon, that's all well and good, but it is very difficult, if not impossible, to acknowledge that God is in control. The second challenge then comes up in verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. We may not see it. It may be difficult for us but that God is exalted. But what we need to do is to be quiet before God. Prayer is a conversation with God. But sometimes when God speaks... What can we say? What can we say? We simply bow and we are quiet in his presence. And we acknowledge that he is God. We don't try to answer him. We don't try to challenge him. We simply are quiet and acknowledge that he is God. And the psalmist, the sons of Korah, end this with the words, The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. This is a powerful psalm, a powerful song, and one that we should pray. It's one that we need in this dark time. But there's one thing I haven't mentioned, which is usually what comes to my mind whenever I read this psalm. Why does God identify himself why does he call himself by the name of a human? By any finite human being. Jacob. By the name of a messy human being, if you wish. I want to say this carefully. But one might try to make the case that God needs a better PR person. Because Jacob is probably not the best person you want to identify yourself by. You remember the story of Jacob? He was one of twins. When his brother was exhausted and needed some sustenance, he needed to eat, all Jacob could think of was, hey, I can work this. I can work this to my advantage. And for 
a bowl of red stew, he got his brother's birthright. And then, when it came time for the blessing, he deceived his own father. And Isaac gave him the blessing that belonged to Esau. This is probably not someone I would want to identify myself by. Why does, in fact, God identify himself as the God of Jacob? I think the answer lies, in part, in what the angel told Joseph, found in Matthew 1. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. That includes Jacob. God identifies himself with sinful people because his son would come and has come to save those very people. And in our redemption, we hear the wonderful words found in Hebrews. Both the one who makes men holy, that's the Lord Jesus, and those who are made holy, those who are his people, are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. So the God of Jacob is with us. The God of that guy who cheated his brother, who lied to his father, who did not show kindness in a time of need. Why does God identify himself? Because redemption comes through his son. Jesus would save his people from their sins. Let's pray together. Father, we are in the midst of a pandemic in which a microscopic virus seemingly has brought us to our knees and we have forgotten that you are the Lord God Almighty. You are our refuge, our fortress. Change is the essence of our life, but we're expecting this kind of change, not something so dramatic, so earth-shattering, turning the world upside down. May we pray this song and be reminded of who you are, that in the midst of chaos and change, you remain the same. You are our God and not ashamed to be called by our names. So you're the God of Jacob. You're the God of Damon. One that you have redeemed by your son. We thank you for the Lord Jesus who has and will save his people from their sins. I ask that you would keep us safe and in good health We respond to you, we look to you in prayer, that in the midst of great chaos, you are still there. We pray for those in authority, that they would make wise decisions. We pray for our fellow citizens, 
everyone in this country. We pray for those in other countries that you would bring deliverance. May we be reminded that you are the Lord God Almighty. Sometimes we just need to be quiet. We need to be still and be reminded that you are God. Keep us in the coming days. Bring an end to this pandemic, we pray. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.